Amen. Today is a super special day and I'm very excited for you to be here uh, on this special day because today is Young Communicators Sunday. And you know, we're very committed to investing in young people into the next generation in our church. And so it's incredible to see what God's doing all through the ages from our kids who are becoming worshipers. If you could peek in and see them today, you'd see kids who are worshiping God. And you'll see at the end of the service as hands go up and people make commitments, kids make commitments to serve the Lord. It's just powerful what God's doing. And then in youth and in young adults, we're seeing young people who are on fire for the Lord, who are, are walking away from the ways of the world and saying, I wanna follow Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's just amazing what God's doing. And so we feel as a church that it is our mandate, that it's our mission to invest in the next generation. So we say we're a church of all generations on mission to reach the next generation. And today you're gonna get to hear from five students who God has put a word on their heart and God's working in their lives. They've got incredible stories of encountering God and, and what he's done in their life. And we just believe that you're gonna be so encouraged, you're gonna be challenged and that God's gonna speak directly to your hearts from the word that they're gonna share today. And so this is Alex. Alex is our awesome youth director. Give it up for Alex. Alex, will you tell us a little bit more about what's going to happen today? Yeah, so we have five very special people who are going to share a message for you. They have been praying for you. They've been praying yep. for this day specifically. They've been praying over their messages. We truly believe that God is speaking through them to you this morning. And I was thinking about this earlier. This isn't just an opportunity for them to get on stage, to give a message, and to get experience. This is an opportunity for you to hear what God has put on their heart. So I want to encourage you. Uh, let's get excited. These, they have worked so hard uh, over the past month in preparing these messages. So I just want to encourage you. Give them some encouragement. Cheer them on. Shout out some amens. Uh, but more than that, I want to challenge you. Lean in this morning. Uh, God has a word for you specifically. Yeah. He wants to speak to you through these uh, five individuals. And so would you welcome our first speaker to the stage, Elena Ferguson. <laughs> Calvary, how's everyone doing today? Is anyone excited to be in the house of the Lord? Oh, come on, y'all can do better than that. Who's excited to be in the house of the Lord? And before I go any further, I just want to thank our leaders, my amazing parents, our wonderful pastors. Can we just give it up? We have the best pastors in the world. Thank you guys for all you do. So a little bit about myself, my name is Elena and I am 17. I am a senior graduating from high school and I get to serve on the weekend team, on the worship team and at youth. And it is my privilege to speak to you all about a topic that is very near and dear to me. It's something that has radically changed my life and I have seen it change the lives of so many. Many of you are right in this room can agree with me. The topic of praise is what I wanna to talk to you guys today. And the title of my message is Engage in Praise. Someone say that with me. Engage Engage in praise. So I've grown up in church. I'm a pastor's kid, and it was really easy for me growing up to just go through the motions. I knew we sang songs about God and all that, but it wasn't really until I hit a low point of discouragement and hopelessness that God really shifted my perspective into a deeper revelation of what praise really is and why it is so important to engage in it. It's not something that we just think about, but the power of it is only found in the experience of doing it. I'm gonna say that again because I don't want you to miss this. It is not something that we just think about, but the power of it is only found in the experience of doing it. 
Praise is a choice that you have to make. So what is biblical praise? Well, simply put, praise acknowledges who God is and proclaims what he's done. So when we're praising, we're putting our focus on the identity of God, who he is and what he's done. And we don't just think about it. Praise is something that we outwardly declare. So what does that mean? I want you guys to think of it this way. Praise is a verb. So I'm gonna say that with me. Praise is a verb. It's something that we engage in. So thinking good thoughts about God is not praising him. Like I could think good thoughts about my sister who did a great job today singing on the team, or I could be thinking great thoughts about one of my basketball teammates who I thought did really well in one of our games. But I would not be praising them for how they did until I physically express it, until I put words to my thoughts. Praise is outward and expressive. So when you praise, you are putting your thoughts into an action. So what does that look like? That looks like speaking out, declaring who God is, singing praises to him, which is something that we do every week here. We clap, we dance in front of him, we thank him for what he's done. Now these expressions of praise are important, but what's most important is where our hearts are positioned when we praise. Our hearts have to be engaged. Psalm 103 verses one through two says, let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he has done for me. So praise is an outward expression of who God is and what he's done. But why is it important to my life? Why is it important that we as a church engage in praise? Well, number one, we praise simply because God is worthy of it. Psalm 145 verse three says, great is the Lord, he is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. So God is worthy of all the praise simply because who he is, simply because of who he is. He's our provider, he's our healer, he's our savior, he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he has all power over everything. Praise is not based on a feeling, it's based on who he is. We praise because God is worthy of our praise. And the thing is, God does not need your praise. You know, God is who he is, whether we tell him who he is or not. But when we praise, we're aligning ourselves with the truth about who he is. Which brings me to my next point, praise aligns us with God. So when we're outwardly expressing his goodness and what he's done, we are aligning ourselves. We're putting our position to be closer with him and to get closer to his heart. Praise turns the focus off of me and gets it onto him. So when we're out of alignment with God, we're so out of focus. So think of it as a camera lens. When it's on focus, things are blurry, they're, they're fuzzy, and they're unclear. But when we praise God, it brings clarity, and it brings our focus back on Him so that we see Him more clearly. What's important about this is that a lot of the times in our life, we see our bills, we see our work situations, we see stress, we see a difficult situation with that one really difficult relative. But when we praise him, God, you're worthy, God, you're good, and I know you have the final say, we're bringing God into that situation. We're inviting him to be where we are. Psalm 34 verse three says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So praise aligns us with God because it reminds us of who he is, how faithful he is, how good he is. And we're taking authority and we're expressing that into our environment. Praise aligns us with the truth that brings God into our situation. And we need God in our lives in every situation because when he's in it, that's when we have the victory. That's why we can say, point three, praise is our weapon. Now it's no shock to anyone that our, getting, our world is getting darker every day and we cannot ignore the fact that we are in intense spiritual warfare. The enemy is working overtime to steal, kill and destroy and he's after my generation, young people who are searching for hope and love in all the wrong places and that while there's a lot at stake, here's the greater reality. 
God is mighty to save, he's mighty to deliver, to heal and to bring freedom, and he wants his church to engage in the weapons that he's given us, which is praise. So the Bible tells us exactly who we are fighting against and how we ought to fight. Ephesians 6 verses 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So our world right now is in chains to these principalities that Ephesians is talking about. Some of these are depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, family struggles, greed, anxiety, and so much more. A lot of these are the generational strongholds that are holding our world captive today. However, God has given us many strongholds to fight against these strongholds. And one of these weapons is praise. And so we see an amazing example of the power of praise and action and surrender in the book of Joshua. So for some background, Joshua is the new leader of the Israelites who are God's chosen people who were in Egyptian captivity for hundreds of years. God promised them to give them a new home, the promised land. And on their journey to take this new land, they were faced with a massive fortified city named Jericho. And so as Joshua was approaching it, God appears to him and gives him instruction to take the city in probably the most unconventional way you can imagine. So God instructs them to march around the city for seven days once. And on the seventh day, they were to walk around the city seven times, lift up a mighty shout to engage in praise, and then the city walls were to fall down. And so as the Israelites followed God's instructions, on the seventh day, they walked around the city seven times. Joshua 6 verse 16 says, the seventh time around when the priest shouted the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout for the Lord has given you the victory. God's given you the victory, church. Verse 20 goes on to say, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. The Israelites had victory over this massive impossible stronghold because of their obedience to God and their step of faith to praise in the situation before they saw the results of it. This is how we win our battles. We shout from a place of victory. We engage in praise even in the midst of our situation and that's where God steps in and fights our impossible battles for us. It's in this step of faith and surrender that says, God, nothing around me makes sense right now. I feel like everything is crashing down, but I know that even in my weakness, you are my strength because you are powerful. You're a provider, you love me. Your mercies are new every morning. And no matter what my situation is, you are good. You are worthy, you have the final say. This is why we don't have to be discouraged or despair in the middle of hard times because God's already won the battle for us. We're not praising to win. He has already won the battle for us. Now, I know what it's like to wake up and wish that I hadn't. I've wrestled with things like the anxiety and depression and I've hit rock bottom. Sin held me captive at one point in my life. And what broke me free from what seemed impossible to get rid of was when I chose to get the focus off of myself and what I was going through and get it onto what the power of God can do in my situation. That's when I came alive. When I vocalized how powerful God is, when I physically expressed to him, God, you're good, you're worthy. I know you're powerful. I know you're fighting for me. Praising God is what helped break the doors off of my prison doors and it can do the exact same thing for you. So let's remember church, God's always worthy of our praise, no matter what. It aligns us with him and it is a powerful weapon against darkness. So let's use praise as a weapon. Don't let it remain a thought in your mind because you need to take authority in it because God's given you this weapon to use to fight against your strongholds. Once you stand up, get a little loud with it, the atmosphere in the room has to shift because praise drives out darkness. So I challenge you all to invite yourself, I mean, to invite God into whatever situation you are in. Be bold with your praise and see what happens for yourself.
Thank you. Can a pee catch me for me in the ground? Look down to my friends and the knees on the uh, got me feeling like a leaf on the nail. Can a pee catch me for me in the ground? Can a pee catch me for me in the uh, Tony, and before I get into my message, I just want to say real quick, you know, how much I love this church. I love this church so much. I love what we're doing here. I love how strong the presence of the Lord is here. I love y'all, the people, and I love our leaders and our pastors. So can we just give it up for our pastors real quick for a second? They lead us so well. Thank you so much for everything that you do. I know y'all don't take this lightly, so thank you for this opportunity to be able to share the word with the congregation. And Today I'm going to be talking to you all about serving, and there's no better place to look when we're talking about serving than the, to look at the life of Jesus, who was the ultimate servant, and we learned everything we need to do from him because he set the example of how we should live our lives. John 13 paints this beautiful picture of Jesus. One of the last things he did before he died was he washed his disciples' feet. Now, just to set it up, the day before Jesus went to the cross, he met the disciples in an upper room, and, you know, they're having dinner right now when we're about to pick up. So, John 13, 1, it says... Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he had loved them to the very end. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped the towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying with him with the towel he had around him. Then we jump down to verse 12, and he said, he had, he had, when he had finished washing their feet, he put this on his clothes and returned to his place. He asked them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. So Jesus intentionally made doing a servant's job one of the last things he did before he died because he wanted to emphasize how much he valued and how important it is for us to serve one another. That was the, now just for some context, what, you know, I'm, let me ask you something. What did they walk on every day, all day? They walked on straight dirt, just dirt. And what did they walk in? They walked in straight chanclas. If you don't know what a chancla is, ask the Latino le next to you. I guarantee you they know what a chancla is. But for those of y'all who don't know, Chinese is just a sandal. It's just straight sandals. They got the, the toes out, you know, they got everything out, and they walk in straight dirt. And so, basically, when you would walk into someone's house, the first thing that would happen is they would get their servant, their lowest servant, to come and wash your feet. The disciples didn't even want to let Jesus wash their feet. You know, Peter was saying, Jesus, I'll never let you wash my feet. Because, and it makes sense, though, know, how could they let Jesus, the Son of God, do such a lowly service to them? You know, everyone expected Jesus to come down and overthrow the Romans and reign over the earth. But what Jesus did was like nothing like that. Jesus came to serve and not be served. He took the lowest position instead of the highest. So if Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Creator, if he served and that was his whole thing, then how much more should we serve? But why do we serve each other? We're compelled to serve by the love of Jesus. Service is an act of love and it's a representation. It's a response to how God's love and our, shows our gratitude for what he's done. It's an expression of our faith in Christ. Faith without action is dead, but how do we put our faith into action? By serving one another. Now, of course, we're saved by faith, 
and by, by works. But true faith cannot help but translate itself into good works. First John three seventeen says, but if anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Pastor Mike a couple weeks ago was talking about evangelism. And he said that if we're not sharing our faith with other people, then we may have a heart problem. In the same way, if we're not serving one another, we may have a love problem. Next thing, we serve one another, when we serve one another, we serve Jesus. Serving is an act of worship. You know, there's this passage in Matthew 25, and it's, you know, it picks a picture of the throne room of God. And it starts out, and it basically says, one day God will call all people to stand before him. And he will separate the unbelievers from the believers, and he will say, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Don't miss this next part. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. And I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the believers will basically respond and they'll ask him, like, Jesus, when did we do any of this for you? You know, when did we do this? And God's going to respond. He's going to say, truly I tell you. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I mean, Jesus said what he said, you know. There's <laughs> no better way to put it. He clearly shows in the scripture how to live this out. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, look after the sick, invite the stranger, visit those in prison. When we serve people, we are serving the Lord. And when we take care of his people, it pleases God. God delights in our unselfishness when we serve his sheep because serving his sheep is the same thing as serving him. That's why when we serve people, we shouldn't treat it as if we're just serving people. We're, we're really serving the Lord. We need to do everything the best that we can because we're really serving God. And the God of the universe does not deserve a half-hearted service. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were, worship, if you were, as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And God will open doors for serving, but you and I need to say yes and walk through those doors that he opens for us. How do we do this? You know, at church, we got a bunch of amazing dream teams here. And, you know, our church does an amazing job of giving us opportunities and opening doors for us to really be able to serve and live this out. But how do we serve outside church? Because we're not trying to be no Sunday-only Christians, right? We serve at work. Serve those who you work with. Serve in your community. Outreach in your neighborhood. And see a need and just meet it. Serve your family. Do the little things. Just serve. God puts opportunities in front of you for a reason. And some of us may be like, well, I'm not good at anything. You know, there's really nothing I can do. But let me tell you something. I felt this way so many times, so many times. But remember that your inability does not affect his ability. Philippians 4.13 said, (laughs) Philippians 4.13 said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So remember that your, your not enough is more than enough in his hands. You know, I found that in my life. I feel the closest to the Lord and I feel his presence is the strongest when I'm serving people because it connects me to the heart of God because that's the heart that Jesus had. So if you feel like your life is lacking purpose or you feel disconnected from God, then just serve. Just find the need and meet it. So I just challenge y'all today. Can we pick up our towel? Can we wash the feet of those around us? Can we love because he loved us? And can we serve because he served us? Thank y'all so much. My name is Luke Boyd. I'm 18 years old. Um, And I just graduated high school. And before I start, I would like to just thank Pastor Benny Kelly for this opportunity. I'm so humbled. Um, I would love to thank God that I'm just here today. Can I get an amen? All right. 
So I want to introduce my topic with you guys today by briefly sharing kind of my story with you. Now, all my life, I went to church. I was a churchgoer. I went to Sunday school, but nothing really clicked with me. Um, and it wasn't until about three years ago that, actually, this man is here today, my best friend's dad asked me this question, how do you know the God you serve and the God you praise is the one true God? And he's, he's Christian as well, obviously. Um, he challenged me with this question, actually. It led me to find proof. Proof as in philosophical, historical, um, and scientific proof. Now, it wasn't until I did this research that I had the conclusion that Jesus is the one true God. And I knew with this conclusion I had to tell people and fulfill the Great Commission. Now, in my search for truth, God actually used a man named Ray Comfort, who's a street evangelist, to bring me to this conclusion. You might know him as a YouTuber or something. You might have seen him before. He walks around interviewing people, basically, um, to share the gospel. Now, first off, I want to flip to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 to 20. Jesus is saying here, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Actually, sorry, this was right from the Amplified Version, so it's a sound more like this. Go therefore and make disciples. <laughs> all right, all right, seriously, seriously, come on. <laughs> Well, we know that this is a commandment from Jesus given, from the, given to the disciples that we need to evangelize, that we need to go into the world and teach others with what we have been taught. So a few weeks ago, Pastor Benny in your Love Your Neighbor series said, Jesus' last command should be our first concern. And see, I totally agree with that. So how do we do that? So point number one today, you can jot down your notes, is appeal to the conscience. Now, how do we appeal to the conscience? Well, what this means is that appealing to the conscience means giving someone a question to an answer that they already know, that they've been thinking about pretty much all the rest, the, the whole life. So Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. See, what Paul is talking about, about here in Romans is actually that, believe it or not, just a person is thinking about what eternity is like. We all have this eternal nature, I like to call it, and that's what we're appealing to here. So basically, it's a great conversation starter to deliver the gospel. Now, you might be able to start with a simple question like, do you think there is an afterlife? Now, in my experience, people usually say yes, but obviously you might um, encounter some atheists who say, oh, no, I'm an atheist, well, then you would need to know more apologetics and more truth, and that's a whole other sermon, so I'm not going to get into that. But point one, we appeal to their conscience, right? And we ask the question, do you believe there's an afterlife? Point two, we reveal that diagnosis, and how do we do that? How do we reveal the diagnosis, and what is the diagnosis? So I have a little analogy here. Say you're a doctor, and you have a patient in need of a cure for a disease, Imagine here she doesn't know anything about the disease. Would it make more sense to hand them the cure for the disease or the x-rays? And let me tell you why you hand them the x-rays. I'm sure you guys know. The x-rays show them the need for the cure. It's transparent and gives them 
uh, this need, this longing for the cures. You see, I was the patient. I'm sure many of us here were patients that were dead in our sin. And this disease was sin that I'm talking about. And it's very terminal. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. What, what is due to us for our sin is death. It might, it might seem harsh, but that is the just penalty for our sin. Paul is saying here that, right, it's a disease, right? It's technically a disease. And um, another place in Romans, Paul actually says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We want to tell people that without Jesus, we aren't good. That we're actually headed to a spiritual death. So how can we show others the need for this cure? We want them to long for the cure. Like I said, the x-ray shows them the transparency. And we want to be transparent with them. We say these things because we love them. Now, you would ask them a simple question. Do you think you're a good person? Don't get me wrong. Most will say that they're a good person. I know one time... Uh, I was faced with the same question by Ray Comfort, and I, th- I was a very self-righteous person, and I'd like to think that I was good. But we know that with God's moral perfection, um, with the absolute standard of good, which is actually meaning moral excellence, we know that we're not morally excellent. Can I get an amen for that? Jesus actually says in Mark chapter 10, no one is good but God. So then we would go on by being transparent with them, by giving them some of the Ten Commandments. We would say, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever said God's name in vain? Have you ever looked at a woman with lust or a man with lust? And they would be, they would understand that they are actually guilty, that they are not good people according to God's law. Now see, the whole goal of this line of thought is not to hurt someone, but to bring them to an understanding of the need for the cure like I was talking about. Second Corinthians Uh, Chapter 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What Paul is saying here is not like worldly grief where it causes harm and heartache and pain and suffering, but it actually leads to repentance and salvation. It's something to rejoice in. So that's that's what we're telling people here, okay? It's not harsh. It's actually loving. So... With the diagnosis of sin, we now get to administer the final cure. What is the cure? So we know that our diagnosis is not a physical diagnosis, but a spiritual diagnosis. The cure is not actually a prescription, but a person. This person is Jesus. Amen. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is everlasting life. Through who? Christ Jesus. Come on. Jesus is our cure. You can look at it this way. I got another analogy for you guys. Imagine you're in the court of law and you're in debt of speeding fines that you, you cannot pay. You have no money to pay these speeding fines. You are just sitting in court. The judge comes down from the bench and pays those stack of speeding fines and says, you're free to go. I like to think of, think of that analogy uh, just like Jesus because Jesus said just before he died, it is finished, meaning the debt has been paid for our sin. At this point, we've appealed to a person's conscience. We've delivered them the diagnosis of sin. And we want to present them with the cure for sin, Jesus. We want them to receive Jesus. And we want to do this by asking them, would you like to receive forgiveness of their sins by accepting Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins? 
and giving them the opportunity to obviously be saved in the end. So this whole thing I'm talking about is when you're encountering someone, like I said, Ray Comfort, and these were actually some of his points. So like I said, get on the right foot with the person, right? We want to connect with a person. We don't even want to mention God. We just want to connect to them, their eternal um, being. They might not be Christian. They might be turned off by the name Jesus, as we know some people are in this day and age. Um, and then we want to hand them the diagnosis and finally present them the cure for their sin. And I want to end our time together by saying it should break our hearts for those who do not know Jesus. We need to show love for God by loving his people. And finally, I want to encourage you with this. This is Paul speaking in Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 28 to 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may powerfully present everyone perfect in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is saying here that we need to teach everyone with wisdom. We need to bring people to Christ. Notice how he says, present everyone perfect in Christ. That's his goal, and that should be your and I's goal as well. I thank you for your time today, church. God bless everyone. Good morning, Calvary. How are we this morning? My name is Olivia. I'm an incoming freshman in college, and you might see me on a camera back there every once in a while. But today I'll be sharing a little bit about trusting in God. When I think about trusting in God, the first thing that comes to my mind is Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on into your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he shall direct your paths. Now, this verse was drilled into my head when I was younger, in Sunday school and all that, but as I grew up, I learned that trusting in God is not as easy as this verse makes it seem. So I thought I would share two things that we can trust God with and why. The first thing that we can trust God with is with what we have. In John 1, 3, it says that everything around us was created by God. So if everything was created by God, God also has the power to give us what he's created our material possessions, the money that we earn, the people in our lives, the experiences that we go through, everything was given to us by God. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above. Pastor Benny mentioned that earlier. Because everything we have was given to us by God, we know that God would never give us anything that wasn't meant for us and nothing that wasn't a part of his will for our lives. God gives us what is good and perfect. Many characters in the Bible had to go through a waiting season. Joseph had to wait two years in prison before God's purpose for his life was fulfilled. Jacob had to wait 14 years to marry Rachel. Abraham had to wait 25 years for God to fulfill his promise that him and Sarah would have a child. And just like many other characters in the Bible, we go through a waiting season too. One thing that I've noticed is that the longer the waiting season gets, the stronger the doubt gets. We doubt if it was even God that spoke to us. We doubt if God will actually do what he's promised. 1 Peter 5.8 says that the enemy lies in wait to devour us. So if the enemy can wait to destroy us, why can't we wait for God to make a way through our situations, right? Matthew 6.28-34 reminds us that if God can take care of the lilies, how much more is he going to take care of his most prized creation? Everything we want and need will fall into place because he knows what's best for our lives. The second thing that we can trust God with is with our future. 
It is so easy to make plans for our lives and want everything done a certain way. Not saying that planning is wrong, but Proverbs 19.21 says that many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Just last month, my family and I went through something that um, we did not see coming. It was very unexpected. But even in that, our, it was teaching us and our family that um, even in situations where we don't see the outcome, we don't, we don't understand what's going on, we, can, we still have a reason to trust in God. In the middle of plans or circumstances that don't go right, there is, we always have every single reason to trust in God because he uses everything for our good. He takes what the enemy meant for evil and he turns it for good. If you know me, you know that I can be very emotional. I feel things very deeply. So when I watch TV shows or movies or something, I get very attached to the characters. And so when they go through something that's like really upsetting, you will catch me sobbing my eyes out. <laughs> but I also know that if the characters never went through anything that was hard or difficult, there would be no reason for me to watch the show. There would be no drama, no plot. And in the same way, if we never went through anything that challenged us or tested our faith, we would have no reason to rely on God. But we were made to be in relationship with God, so God uses what we go through to teach us to trust him. God already knows what we're going to go through. He knows when we're going to stumble, and he knows the outcome of our situation, and he still chooses to walk through it with us. The Bible tells us about a friend of Jesus's named Lazarus who died due to a sickness, and he was dead for about four days, and then God raised him from the dead. Now, reading the story actually kind of made me laugh. I would encourage you guys to read it on your own and see what God speaks to you. And before I reenact the story, I would really appreciate some courtesy laughs. That would be absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but basically, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, Lazarus is asleep. we got to go wake him up. So let's get moving. Jesus is packing his stuff, and he's ready to go. And the disciples are like, you said you, said you want to travel across towns to wake him up from a nap. And Jesus is just like, he just sighs, and he's like, y'all just don't understand me. You just don't get me. <laughs> Lazarus is dead, and God is calling me to go raise him up from the dead, so let's get moving. <laughs> Jesus knew that God would raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. A God that gives us that kind of everlasting love is a God that is worthy to be trusted. So, um, why we can trust in God is because he is who he says he is. Allow yourself to be vulnerable with God. It's hard to trust someone that you can't see with your earthly eyes, but he is definitely someone that you can see with your spiritual eyes. God has proven in the past, and he continues to do so, that he is holy, he is faithful, he is loving. All of these things are his nature, his character. That's just who he is. And because of who he is, we can trust him. God works beyond anything we could ask, think, or imagine. But as much as God does work in supernatural ways, we shouldn't need or rely on these signs and wonders to trust in God. Just last week, Pastor West was saying, God doesn't use a big, booming voice. God uses a still, small voice when he speaks to us. Speaking of, don't we have some amazing pastors? <laughs> Thank you guys for leading us so well. In John 20, 29, Jesus is saying to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Are we trusting more in the miracles themselves than we trust in the God of the miracles? The Bible says to seek ye first the kingdom of God. So we're supposed to be going after God himself, not the things that he can give us, not the peace that he provides for us, and most especially not the tingly feeling we get during worship. We go after him. We go after his heart. So as I close, I just want to encourage you guys to completely surrender yourself to God. Trust him with everything that you have. Trust him with your future and your faith. Seek after him and his heart and not what he can give you and just watch God open doors for you.
All right, hello, Calvary. Uh, so there's many of you that might know my face, even if you don't know my name. I serve on the worship team playing acoustic guitar. I also serve on the tech team in the back. But just in case you don't know me, thank you, Pastor Jay. Uh, just in case you don't know me, my name is Kyle, and I am easily the oldest of our young communicators here today. Uh, but today, I want to talk to you all about a little thing called sacrifice. You see, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a Christian home. Went to church every Sunday. My mom would help out in our Sunday school. My dad ran the tech team, or he was the tech team. Uh, but anyways, I grew up in this Christian environment. And so I kind of always thought that I knew what sacrifice meant. But at the end of the day, my definition basically boiled down to you give up stuff. Uh, so today I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that definition because I found that my definition was a little bit lacking. So we have a whole bunch of stories in the Bible that deal with sacrifice, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there were two stories in particular that when I read them, they really helped me to understand what sacrifice meant. So the first story comes from the end of Mark chapter 12, and it's the story of the widow's offering. And the second story comes from a couple chapters earlier in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler. So this first story, where we're talking about the widow's offering, if you don't know it, Jesus goes and he sits in the temple, and he's watching as all these different people go forward and bring their offerings. And so as Jesus is watching, there's this widow that comes forward, and she, all she has to give is these two small coins, barely worth more than a few pennies. So she goes, she puts these coins in the offering box, and Jesus takes notice of this. In fact, he finds it so important that he calls his disciples over and has to tell them, I want you guys to know that you've seen all these different people giving all their different offerings, but this woman has given more than everybody else. And so then we go and we look at the story from Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler. Jesus is out teaching among the people, as he often does, and this man comes up to him and he says, teacher, I want to know, what do I have to do to get, to get eternal life? And you know, that's a pretty good question. We all want to know that. That's why we're here. Uh, and so Jesus, his first answer to him is, okay, well, have you honored your father and mother? Have you not murdered anybody? Uh, you know, just have you kept the commandments? And so this man, he says, well, yeah, I have kept all the commandments ever since I was a child. And so Jesus tells him, great job, that's awesome, amazing, but I have one more thing you need to do. I want you to go sell all of your possessions, give what you have to the poor, come and follow me, and then you will have eternal life. And so the man, he, when he hears this, he's like, yeah, that might be a step too far, Jesus, sorry, but I'm out of here. Uh, so he turns, he walks away in sorrow. And so we have these two contrasting passages where we have this woman who was willing to give up the very last thing that she had, and this man who was not. And so this is kind of where I, this is what really helped me to understand what sacrifice meant. Because I had always thought of myself as someone who was willing to sacrifice. I give up my time for the church. I give up my money for the church. I give up all sorts of things. Uh, but what I realized was that I only do that up to a certain point. Because there's always this point where I realize, oh, that's a little bit inconvenient for me to take care of. You know, that, that conversation might make me a little bit uncomfortable. Giving that much might be a little bit painful. 
But what I've learned about sacrifice over the years is that if it isn't painful, then it isn't really a sacrifice at all. And so we go back to this man who was asking Jesus these questions about eternal life. And I think that if Jesus had stopped after the first question when he was asking about the commandments, then the man would have been ecstatic. I don't think that he would have been upset at all with just continuing on as he was with following the rules, avoiding bad behavior, all of that. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just want somebody who would avoid bad behavior. He wanted somebody who would give up his entire lifestyle. And when the man was asked about that, it was too much for him. And if we're being honest with ourselves, it's too much for a lot of us too. And so yeah, sure, maybe I could go and do that thing that God is calling me to do, but I already do so much for the church. Do I really have to do this too? Like I already tithe, do I have to give to that missionary that's visiting? Do I have to give to that family that's in need? Isn't that what I pay a tithe for in the first place? I already serve on a team. Do I have to give up a Saturday so that I can go and help that neighbor that maybe I don't like so much, but he's working on a project and he could probably use some help? I already invited someone to church. We've got these awesome little invite cards. If you haven't gotten one, make sure to grab one on your way out. But I've already invited somebody to church. Do I have to be the one to tell them what it means to follow Jesus too? Isn't that what we have pastors for? Isn't that what we have this whole church for? Like, why do I have to be the one to do this? And if you're asking yourself any of those questions, then you already know the answer. God is calling you to it. Because if, if he wasn't calling us to it, we wouldn't feel like we have to make up excuses to get out of it in the first place. And so we come to this point where we have to ask ourselves this tough question. Who am I? Am I like the rich young ruler? The man who has lived from his youth following the rules of God, avoiding bad behavior, trying to do everything right, but not willing to give up what matters most to him? Or are we going to be like the widow, who even though she was at the end of her rope, she only had a few pennies, she still gave everything that she had to the church. And I don't know if I'm going to be the right person every day. I don't know that I am going to be like that widow every day, that I'm going to give my all. But I know that there are going to be times when I make the wrong decision, when I don't follow through on the things that God has called me to do. But I know which person that I would like to be, and I hope that you do too. Thank you for your time. Good morning, Cal Good morning, Calvary. How are we this morning? Good? Good. Well, my name's Abby. I'm a rising senior at Catoctin High School. And before I start, I just want to say thank you to all my pastors and leaders. Can we just give it up for all our leaders? I'm so thankful for this opportunity. Thank you. Okay, so the word that God's put on my heart for this morning is how to be people of the light. And I want to talk about what light is, what it does, and how we can be people of light in such a dark world. Also, just be prepared, because I'm about to say light a hundred times. So, <laughs> all right, I'm going to start with Ephesians 5.8. It says this, 
For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. So what's the first mention of light in the Bible? It's in Genesis, right? Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, so he divided the light from the darkness. So even from the very beginning, it's established light and dark do not coexist. He divided light from darkness. Now, if we jump to the New Testament, to John 9, 4 through 5, Jesus explains to his disciples what his purpose is and what will become their purpose when he ascends. Here it says, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus came to earth as the light. So I have two points that describe what light does. First, light illuminates. Where there's light, there's no darkness. And illumination brings revelation. So I want you all to look around. You can see pretty well in here, right? How about now? But the second I turn the lights back on, darkness has to run. There's no argument. It simply has to go. It can't be in the same place as the light. Light also reveals the truth. When the lights were off, nothing about the room changed. It was just unseen. But when the lights are on, truth is revealed. In the same way, when there's no light in this world, the truth remains hidden. But when you're living with Jesus, the truth is revealed to you because his light shines and uncovers everything unseen. Jesus illuminated the world and everywhere he walked, the darkness was forced to go. He revealed the dark and corrupt ways of the religious leaders and the Pharisees and he restored people of both physical and spiritual sight. And my second point is light gives life. True life can only exist in the presence of light. I'm gonna say it again. True life can only exist in the presence of light. Jesus brought new life to people who were outcasts, the forgotten, the ones who felt alone, everyone. His light changed everything. Now, the darkness cannot stand light. So when the devil saw the light of God in Jesus, he knew he had to extinguish it. So Jesus died a sinner's death on the cross. But how many of us know that the power of God can never be extinguished by death? Because we know what it says in the first chapter of John. The word gave life to everything that was created. His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Jesus proved he was the light of the world by conquering death. So you might be thinking, that's great, but what does it mean for me? Well, we know Jesus said he was the light of the world while he was here on earth. But before he ascended, he appointed his disciples to embody his light. So while Jesus isn't here on earth, the light's actually us, the church, the body of Christ. And as the light, it's our job to fulfill Jesus' last command. Go. Go out into the world. Be my witnesses. Tell the world about me. At my school, I co-lead the FCA club, which stands for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And when I first started going, there were only like three to four people that included me. <laughs> but me and my friends saw this as an opportunity. Like, hey, we can, we can pray for this, we can grow this. This can, this can be a way that we show God's love to our school. So we started praying and praying and praying. And over a year later, it's grown to 20 people, which is great. <laughs> And 20 is not a huge number, but it's a sign that God is working and we trust him. Sometimes it only takes one person who's like, God, I surrender, I give you my life and just completely trust him. Because I found he can do so much with what little we have to offer. 
In Matthew 5, Jesus says, a city on a hilltop cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed up on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Remember what I said about light being separate from darkness? For us, that means not conforming, not looking like the world. We should actually be reflecting Jesus' character. Like how the moon reflects the sun's light, we should reflect God's light. So when people look at you, they should be able to tell. Something's different about them. When you're walking in the presence of the Lord, you're going to look different. You don't belong to the world. You belong to the king. You're a citizen of heaven, and you're a priest who carries his presence with you everywhere you go. In the Old Testament, there's this man named Moses who led the Israelites out of slavery with the power of God. Now, as they were traveling, slowly, slowly making their way towards the promised land, they carried this tent with them called the tabernacle. And whenever they set it up inside this place called the Holy of Holies, this is where God's presence would actually come and rest and be among the people so that the priests and Moses would go in and talk with God. Now, whenever Moses went in, God would give him instructions and wisdom for the Israelites. And when he came out, his face glowed so brightly that he had to wear a veil because people would be blinded if they looked at him. His appearance changed because of the person he was spending time with. If he didn't seek God's presence, he'd look like the rest of the people. It's the same for us today, except we don't have to walk into any kind of structure or tent to feel his presence because it lives inside us. But in order to embody the light of God, you have to abide in his presence. It means being in a constant conversation with him, listening to his voice, being in his presence daily. So I want to leave you with this point. Being the light is not easy. It's anything but easy. It's the hardest and narrowest path, but it's the only one with hope, and it's the only one that leads to eternal life. It means taking up your cross daily, setting aside distractions to really focus on the king, dying to yourself, spending time with Jesus, and abiding in his presence, because the more you spend time with someone, the more you look like them. The Bible says, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. At this time, I want to ask, if you're in this room and you're like, I want to embody the light of Jesus, I want to look like him, that you would repeat this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to this world as the light. Thank you for giving us an identity as people of the light. I pray that you would give us wisdom and strength to deny ourselves daily and to look more like you to the people around us. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Excellent job. Don't worry, I'm not your sixth young communicator. And I'm not crying, you're crying. Amen? Excellent job, all of you guys. Thank you so much. And aren't they amazing? Aren't they amazing? I love it. This wasn't just a cute service, was it? We, we heard the word of the Lord for us. Yeah, that's good. You can stand and give, give honor where honor's due. That's good. Yeah. We believe in honor, so that's good. They spent hours and hours and hours over the last almost two months preparing and 
refining. Man, I love how God does, you can remain standing, we're, we're pretty much done here. Uh, I love how God does everything perfectly and in order, right? I think he set up a perfect structure for today with Elena just opening up. The Bible says that we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So she set us out, right, saying, like, hey, let's get our hearts right. Let's get our minds right. Let's praise the Lord. And then we had Tony talking about serving. How could you embody the lifestyle of Jesus? Serve others. That, that's, that's it. If you want to be more like Jesus, find more ways that you can serve others. And then we had, what, Olivia talking about trusting God, not just with our stuff, but also with our future, with our circumstances, things that are going on. And so I just want to encourage all of us in this room, some of you just needed an extra dose of, like, trust today. And I feel like because of her testimony of the things that she's walked through recently, her family has walked through recently, that you, you got that. Did you guys get some of that for yourselves today? Amen. And Kyle talking about sacrifice, man, that was not easy. There was an old event he says, is tight, but it's right. And that was, that was one of those things. Like, you, you know, it's easy for a lot of us to give our 10% to God of our finances, but uh, it gets a little bit harder to give him that last 10% of our lives. Right? We can give God 90% of our lives pretty easily, but it's that last 10% that Kyle was saying, look, let's give it to God. Let's, let's do this. So thank you for that encouragement. And then finally, how, what better way to end it by saying now go and be light. Go, go spend time in the presence of God. Go embody the light of Jesus Christ. That's what all of us are called to do. And with all these messages somewhere in there, it all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's why we're here today is, is to lift up the name of Jesus. So, man, the gospel is really simple. I just want to share it with you. It's that Jesus created you to be in relationship with him. You, you were created for one purpose and one purpose alone, to be in perfect relationship with him. And every time we do things outside of God's design for our life, what that does, it, it creates this void in our relationship with God. The Bible puts it this way, that the wages of sin is actually death. But that same verse doesn't stop there. That same verse is so beautiful. It goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So because of Jesus, we can now have forgiveness of that sins and that relationship with God can be restored. You see, Jesus died on the cross for you and I. He died on the cross for my sin and then for three days he was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some fable. This isn't something that you would read in Greek mythology class. For more than 500 eyewitness accounts would testify to the risen, resurrected, walking, talking, breathing, eating, being touched Jesus. And when he rose from the dead, that proved that you and I can have new and eternal life with him. That we can actually begin to praise him. That we can actually begin to trust him. That we can actually begin to sacrifice for him. That we can serve for his glory. And that we can now be the light of the world through that power in him. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, God has been moving through worship. God has been moving through people serving coffee out front, through smiles. God's been serving, moving through these young men and women serving us with the word of God and this worship team. So however God's responding to your heart, the first response is just this. If you're not in right relationship with God, if you've never given your life to Jesus and you're ready to say, you know what, I need this in my life. What I'm experiencing today, this is what I'm created for, to live in his presence. You're saying, yes, I want this. I just want you to throw your hand up in the air and I want to pray with you. We're getting hands right now. Here we go. We got one in the back of here. Come on, we're going to take a few moments here. Lift it high so we can see it. Lift it high so we can see it. Thank you so much. Come on, I'm going to give it a, a few more moments. This is what we're here for today. This is why we had five young people pouring out their hearts to you for this moment right here. Yeah. Come on, I'm going to give it 30 more seconds. 
And in addition to that, if maybe at one time in your life you were living for Jesus and you were sold out and you were on fire, but then just kind of life came in. We sing that song, rain came and wind blew. Come on, some of that stuff, that wind came in your life, the, the rain came in your life, and you just kind of began to do things on your own accord, and you're saying, God, I got to come back to you. God, I want to make a decision today to recommit my life to you. I want you to throw your hand up in the air. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray together. Amen. Come on, so let's say this prayer together. All of us as a Calvary family say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for living the life that I couldn't. Thank you for dying the death.